0: All right, let's take a look at chapters 6 through 7 in seminar 16. The central theme here clearly seems to be Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager is really quite simple. It wagers that it's rational to believe in God, even if there's no evidence of God's existence. Why? Because the potential benefit of belief, namely eternal reward, far outweighs the potential cost of disbelief burning in hell, eternal punishment, and the like. Now, apparently, and Lacan wants to emphasize this is only apparently, this wager is premised on a basic question, and it's the same question that Lacan asks and answers in Seminar 14 on the existence of the Big Other. Here, though, it would seem the question is, does God exist? If you answer yes, you have a vision of the divine that comports to a Big Other that exists as whole, complete, totalizing, and so forth. If you answer no, congratulations, you have a vision of the Big Other as barred, lacking, split, desirous, and so forth. Now, Lacan's not gonna go down this path. He wants to tell us there's something even more important to talk about here. In fact, that the question about the existence of God, like that of the Big Other here, is a red herring. More important to him Is the status of the I presupposed by the question and regardless of how you answer it. What is I? This I that occupies the discussion, that takes part in, that partakes of the discourse, known as Pascal's Wager. Now in chapter 5, we see how Lacan arrives at this I. On the right-hand side of the graph of desire that he draws in there, He suggests that everything that's happening in the graph of desire is structured around the desire, not of the subject, but of the big other. You can see this on page 10 of chapter 5. But of course, this distinction doesn't hold. Because, why? My desire is always desire for, of, and as someone else. Think back to our various treatments of the pre edible imaginary triangle, and how we can theorize desire for, of, and as another. Um, now, this can be an actual little o other in the world, or it can be a virtual entity, like the big other. The point, though, is that my desire is always a desire for, of, and as someone, something else. Hence, the double question that Lacan hits us with on page 10, chapter 5. I ask myself what you want. Which, according to him, is the exact same thing as I ask you what I want. In chapter 6, he's just going to be really clear about this. There is no distinction between these two questions. The second one, though, the second part, I ask you what I want is key. Lacan says in chapter five, I'm not asking you who I am in that moment, but instead what I is. And this I, this J, as you can see in chapter five, is not positioned on the right hand side of the graph of desire, where everything seems to orbit the desire of the big other. As you see him charting it in chapter 5. Instead, what we see is that this I is positioned to the left of the desire of the big other in Lacan's rendering of the graph in chapter 5. Namely, it's in the position of fantasy, where in the finished graph we would expect to see the Matthew of fantasy. Lacan here has this I in quotation marks. What are we to make of this? Not surprisingly, Lacan returns to this topic in Chapter 6, and he ups the ante in typical fashion. The double question that we just heard, I ask you what I want, and I ask myself what you want, and and all this back and this dialectic where you have, there is no distinction the same question, this double question, He wants to say that this is the constitutive questioning of analysis. He's clear. Chapter 6, page 12. Check it out. And that the graph of desire is specifically designed to respond to this double question. That's a bold claim. On the one hand, you've got this double question as the constitutive questioning of analysis. And on the other hand, you've got the graph of desire as basically a roadmap for how to respond to this question. Let's be categorical. The discourse of psychoanalysis is nothing less, and all too often I would add, nothing more than this call and response circuit. That's what Lacan is here suggesting. The call of this double question is met with the response of the graph of desire, and this is the discourse of psychoanalysis. Now, this may be why Lacan also says that there's something more at stake in the graph of desire. And we're here toward the end of chapter six. He's not just going to let this sit. He wants to say there's something more that we're working on here. The fun begins on page 11. And he begins by stating that the I in question is not the subject on which so much psychoanalytic theory, and technique centers. So the I is not the split subject, page 11, chapter 6. So here we have it. The I is somehow connected to fantasy, to the matheme of fantasy, which you know is a split subject living their life in relation to this little a. But at the same time, this I is irreducible to that first element in the matheme of fantasy. So what exactly is the connection between fantasy and the I that Lacan says is the major topic in Pascal's Wager, and also the central topic that he's trying to get after here? Check out pages 12 through 14 of chapter 6. There's a lot of good stuff in here, but we can really start the work down at the bottom of page 12. If there is something that is more important to map out from this graph, the Graph of Desire, than this discourse that accompanies it, namely the discourse of analytic experience, it is the structural vectors as they are presented here at the level where the U as dominating the I, as the U-ing, as I said, at the level of the desire of the other, the vectors that converge. So he wants to say more important than the discourse that flows from the graph of desire are the structural vectors that connect the big U with all of its desire to this vertical pronoun I in its connection with fantasy. It is around the desire of the big other that the demand of the discourse of the discourse as we organize it in analytic experience of the discourse precisely that under its aspect that fallaciously pretends to be neutral leaves open the sharpest accent of the demand at its point. And then on page 13, where we see this graph of desire redrawn, it looks very much like what we saw. In chapter 5, um, you can see where we have the desire of the big other on the right-hand side, and then you've got this I, in quotation marks, should be, on the left-hand side. Notice where Lacan goes from here, middle of the page on 13, just underneath this rendering of the graph of desire. It is at the point that as imaginary support corresponds to this desire of the other, what I have always written under the form of matheme of fantasy, split subject in relation to objaya, here as little o, namely, the fantasy, that there lies hidden the function of the I. So the function of the I lies hidden somewhere in the matheme of fantasy. The I, insofar as, contrary to the point of convergence called desire of the other, it is in a diverging fashion that this I hidden under the mathema of fantasy is directed under the form that I precisely that precisely I called at the beginning that of a true questioning of a radical questioning towards the two points where there lie the element of the answer namely In the line on top, big S, which means signifier, a signifier of the fact that the big other is barred, and which is precisely what I took, what I also gave you the trouble to have a support to conceive of what I am here stating, namely, that the field of the big other does not secure, does not assure, at any place, to any degree, the consistency of the discourse that is articulated here, in any case, even the most apparently certain." So, here he is referring to what appears above the I in the graph of desire rendered on page 13, a signifier of the fact that the other lacks. So, north of that I, you see this element he's describing here, a signifier of the barred other. And on the other hand, he wants to tell you what's south of this, on the lower line. And here what you see is signified, little s, meaning according to a big other that is not barred, but whole, but full of answers. This is that treasure trove of signifiers, which a subset would be pulled out at the level of the signified. Here at this lower line, what we see is meaning insofar as it is fundamentally alienated. And it is here that you must grasp the sense of my starting this year with the definition of surplus enjoying and its relationship with everything that one can call in its most radical sense, the means of production at the level of meaning. So this I is caught between, occupies a disjunction or some sort of a space, liminal and otherwise, perhaps even undecidable between a big other that is whole and a big other that is barred. And what Lacan is here saying is that if you head south from that vertical pronoun I, you wind up in a field where the big other is full and enjoyment is experienced as surplus. Now, if you've seen our lectures on the drive, you know what happens if you head north instead and you pass through anxiety around the fact that the big other lacks. It's not surplus enjoyment that awaits, but instead drive satisfaction. Here, though, in 16, he's really concerned with surplus enjoyment, so it's no surprise that it pops up here. Pause on that for a second and just think about what we're doing with the I, because that is the focal point here. We're not entirely sure why yet. We just know that it's key. Next paragraph on page 14. You see that in this way, there is put into this entzweiung, this division, or this split, or this rupture, the term is Hegelian, he says, into this radical division, which is the very one at which Freud's discourse culminates at the end of his life, the division of the I articulated as such. Here's a key point. It is nothing less than that between these two terms, namely, the field where the other, in a way, in some imagining, for a long time that of the philosophers could correspond to any truth. Here he's thinking of the big other as whole, as omniscient, as omnipotent, as this um, totalizing entity that we saw at the very beginning of Seminar 16 corresponding very well with the discourse of philosophy and its attempt to gain a perspective on the world in which the whole world could be cognitivized in some sense. The eye is somewhere between that fantasy, which is among the fundamental fantasy figurations of the big other that we have, and some other entity. Here it is. This entity where precisely the former is canceled out where the big other as whole as complete is canceled out by the simple examination of the functions of language. If you just look at how language operates and the fact that there can be no meta-language, you might fill in the blanks here, you can fundamentally show that the big other as whole, complete, and so forth doesn't exist. And Lacan is saying it's just a simple examination of language that'll show you why and how the big other doesn't exist. I mean that we know how to make, intervene in it, the function of the cut that answers no, no to the God of the philosophers. A simple examination of language brings us to a no that we can address to the God of the philosophers. Now, let's not get wrapped up again in the question of whether the Big Other exists. We know that it does not, period. The question here is whether the I exists, this I that would be something in between the fundamental fantasy that the Big Other exists and the fundamental fact that it does not. The question here is not whether the Big Other exists, but whether the I exists, and more precisely, where does it exist relative to the math of fantasy? Namely, this I as which the subject enters into this discussion, this discourse about the status of the Big Other. So that's another way to figure this. The I in question, is the I as which the subject, any subject, each and every subject, can enter into a discussion of this sort, a discourse about the existence of the Big Other, a wager about the existence of God. The question is, where and how does the subject enter into that discourse? We get another clue about this on page 15. And some pretty definitive statements from Lacan. It's at the bottom, really just as he's ending uh, uh, this seminar six. Nothing else is at stake except precisely the I. People spend their time asking whether God exists. As if it were even a question. God is. There is absolutely no kind of doubt about that. That absolutely does not prove that he exists. The question does not arise, but it is necessary to know if I exists. So it's easy to see here why Lacan is so hot on Pascal. Because what else is God but a figure of the Big Other? And what else is Pascal's wager about than the status of the I in this decision game? And that's really what Pascal's wager is it's a decision game. And the question Lacan has is what's the status of the I in that decision game? Even in spite of what Pascal may have been up to with this wager, Lacan needs to make something else of it. Which brings us to chapter seven and not coincidentally, right to the end of chapter 7, pages 14 to 15. Let's take a look. Again, we're back with Pascal. We're back working on this wager. Chapter 7, page 14, seminar 16, you know where we're headed. Right in the middle of the page, after the word namely. Namely, At the moment that you authorize yourself to be I in this discourse. That's what's up. The veritable ambiguity, the dichotomy, is not between God exists or does not exist, whether Pascal likes it or not. The problem becomes of a completely different nature from the moment that he affirmed we do not know, not whether God exists, but neither whether God is, nor what he is. And therefore, the business about God will be, our contemporaries have perfectly sensed it and have articulated it a matter of fact, which if you refer to the definition I gave last fact, a matter of discourse. The business about God will be a matter of discourse. The only fact is one that is stated. And that is why we are entirely given over to the tradition of the book. What is at stake in Pascal's wager is the following. Does I exist? Or whether I does not exist, as I already told you at the end of my previous discourse. Reading on. I have spent a time that was as it happens, and perhaps I am a little bit too used to doing this. Lacan says. Too much time introducing the core of what is involved. But I think that these premises were indispensable. So there's oftentimes a lot of talk about Lacan's style and how he approaches topics, themes, not just how he talks, but his attack when it comes to concepts. And here you hear him in a rare moment reflecting on that. Perhaps I spend a little too much time going at the core of what is involved, and then coming to his own defense. And yet, I think the work we do on these premises are indispensable. This leads me, then, in a not particularly timely way, to our cut today. And now we get to the good stuff. You should know simply that contrary to what is involved, I'm sorry, you should know simply that contrary to what is believed, the wager is not on the promise but on the existence of the I, something that can be deduced beyond Pascal's wager. Namely, if we put in its place the function of the cause as it is placed at the level of the subject, namely the O object is how we have it here, but this is object little a, hold that thought. It is not the first time for me to write it thus, a cause. It is precisely insofar as the whole wager has this essence of reducing this thing that is all the same, not something that we can, like that hold in the hollow of our hands, namely our life, of which, after all, we may have a completely different apprehension, a completely different perspective, namely, that it comprehends us, and without limit, and that we are here a place of passage." Let's be clear, and let's do so with a bit of risk as well. If the I exists, it's as object little a, is what Lacan is here suggesting. Whether this holds to be true, we'll see as we read deeper into 16. In other words, not as the subject, we know the eye is radically distinct from the subject, but instead as its cause. So if the function of the I is hidden in the matheme math of fantasy and irreducible to the first element in that math theme, namely the split subject, it's no coincidence that we can see it here being linked up with that little a, the third element in the math theme, right? The lozenge is its own element too. Let's not forget the relationship for Lacan is also an element, which is why one plus one always equals three. Here though, we're looking at Objea, this little a, and he wants to associate the vertical pronoun I with that here at the end of chapter seven of seminar 16. Again, emphasizing that this might change, And we might change our minds about this, but for now, this is what we have. If the I exists, it's as little a. Not the subject, but its cause. And the question here, Lacan suggests, at the end of 15, is about life. The question here is what kind of a life you want to live in relation to the cause of your desire and how you want to access enjoyment along the way. Make no mistake, access to enjoyment is dictated, commanded is the word that Lacan uses here, by the topology of the subject. Access to enjoyment is dictated or controlled or commanded by the topology of the subject. It's the same topology that you've seen refigured twice so far in this lecture series each corresponding with the development of a new diagram. The two big diagrams we've developed in this series, each of those corresponds to a refiguration of the topology of the subject, which is the way that we would access enjoyment. But how we mobilize this topology and where we find enjoyment in it, that's up to us, hence the diagrammatic work that we've done so far new ways of mobilizing this topology in hopes of discovering perhaps new ways to access enjoyment as well. At this point though, we still only have two basic ways of accessing enjoyment by way of the topology of the subject. And I'll leave out the seminar seven style of transgressive enjoyment. We needn't talk about that anymore. What I see happening here in 16 are two options for enjoyment. Enjoyment at the level of surplus jouissance, which we talked about as enjoyment occurring in the field of having, refer back to that first diagram we developed out of chapter 1, and enjoyment at the level of drive satisfaction, here enjoyment in the field of being, if we're messing with that first diagram again, which of course means being at a loss, in the field of lack, in short, non-being. Let's see where we go from here. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the god Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.